The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, January 12th, 2017 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Newsmageddon was yesterday. Today is Newsmageddon Boxing Day. Still, I have some important news to report. There were Senate hearings, uh, Mattis for SecDef, Pompeo for CIA, Dr. Ben Carson for, I think he found out today, housing. What? Why would I be asked to bray at the moon as a secretary? Oh, I thought you said howling. You want me to run housing? I could do that. So even though democracy was indeed being shaped in the halls of Congress today, and there was a vote in the wee small hours of the morn that paved the way for repealing Obamacare and replacing it with, I guess, arguments against Obamacare, I do need to go back to the onslaught of developments yesterday. The most important disclosure was the lack of disclosure that Trump would be embracing once he assumes office. It's not as if this was undercovered or that experts calling Trump's plan to give his sons control of his company wasn't paid attention to. I would just say what I object to is taking this unbelievably vital piece of information and in any way watering it down or larding it up with those journalistic safe zone type phrases like critics contend or alleged or sources say. The coverage of Trump's ethics should be blunt and clear. Here are some headlines that don't get there. New York Times, Trump's plans on business may fall short. The article was fine, but the conditional aspect of the headline is not. Wall Street Journal, while critics have been clamoring for Mr. Trump to completely divest, Ms. Dillon, his lawyer, argued that would not eliminate conflicts of interest. And here's NPR. Donald Trump still knows what they are. So even if he's not exercising day-to-day control over the business, critics worry he could be making decisions as president to benefit the Trump organization. Look, this is not critics, right? This is not people who have it in for Trump. This is more properly reported as anyone with any bit of expertise in ethics recognizes that this is fake disclosure, fake divestment. In fact, I wouldn't even rely on quoting authorities on ethics because that puts these issues at a remove from common sense. I would like to see reporting that goes like this. Trump says his sons will take over the business, but this does not eliminate the problem of Trump, the Trump companies, the Trump brand, and the Trump heirs from personally benefiting from policies enacted during the Trump presidency. In fact, without disclosure of what the Trump business holdings are, because we don't know, there's no way for anyone to independently vet how Trump's actions will affect his income, except for Trump saying, take my word for it. None of what I said is actually opinion journalism. It doesn't have to be couched with critics or experts. It's pointed, but it's 100% true. I could back it up with a quote from Bush's ethics expert or Obama's ethics expert or the head of the nonpartisan Federal Ethics Commission. They're all out there. But in this age of dismissal of experts for being experts, I think appeals to authority backfire. And this is also the age of, well, those actions might be true and verifiable and documentable, but you're not listening to the woes of the Trump voter. I mean, Trump himself said this. The only person who cares about putting my taxes out there are you reporters. And he probably thinks he's right. Like, I won the vote. I don't need to follow you. No, 
I mean, he doesn't need to, but if the media makes it plain that he's not doing the job, there's a chance that someday, I don't know, we'll either get accountability or a new president. Whatever Trump's policies become, his biggest weakness, his very biggest weakness, is that there is no way to adequately demonstrate that he's not using the U.S. government to enrich himself and his family. And the very utterance, trust me, undermines the authority of the rule of law. On the show today, a deep dive into another remarkable aspect of Newsapalooza 2017. Anderson Cooper interviews Kellyanne Conway, and you thought Kathy Griffin was the wisecracking dame who got the best out of Anderson. Think again. But first, Morehouse professor Mark Lamont Hill is here to talk about issues of race and how America defines nobody. One thing I've been wanting to talk about for a while is identity politics, and I've been waiting for my next guest, Mark Lamont Hill, to have this discussion. So in the wake of the defeat of Hillary Clinton, it was brought up by Mark Lilla and others that the Democrats need to get away from identity politics. I'll say three things about this. One, it would be great for Democrats if America got away from identity politics, because that would mean that the Republicans would get away from the explicit and implicit embrace of white nationalism. Without identity politics, Trump doesn't win. On the other hand, I'll acknowledge my opinion that I think talk of privilege and talk of microaggressions might very well be off-putting to the disaffected white working class. But did that, even if it's annoying to them, did that really move the needle without that talk? Would the election have been different? And then the other thing I'd say is that Black Lives Matter and that discussion might also be off-putting to the white working class. But so what? I mean, there really is a lot of over-policing going on and the black community feels it acutely. And so correcting problems like that, from my perspective, that is the reason you run for office, not an issue you run away from to gain office. So let's talk about it with Mark Lamont Hill. He is the author of Nobody, Casualties of America's War on the Vulnerable, from Ferguson to Flint and Beyond. You know him from, I don't know, BET and CNN and Morehouse University and a bunch of other universities. Hello, Mark. How are you? I am good. I'm good. I'm good. So when this discussion came up, I, well, I won't put words in your mouth, but I bet you said, yeah, I was waiting for that shoe to drop for someone to blame identity politics. Well, identity politics is something that's been brought up both by the right and the left, Mm -hmm. uh, the hardcore left as a kind of distraction as a kind of signpost of of, uh, of political correctness run amok uh, and as a problem for anyone seriously trying to address the problems of the nation. So people on the right are saying, you know, you guys are so caught up in the black-white stuff, you're so caught up in the gender politics and the so-called war on women and all this stuff that you guys are missing the boat. And people are poor, people are struggling, people are catching hell. And while you guys are playing to the identity politics cheap seats, the uh, the rest of the world is voting and organizing and struggling in a way that ultimately leads to a Trump outcome. Democrats, yeah. you got it wrong. And then the hardcore left is saying, look, identity politics is important. And we need to think about race and we need to think about sexual identity. We need to think about all these things. But we have to think about them against the backdrop of a very concrete set of material conditions that people face, right? So the Bernie Sanders of the world are saying, yeah, no, race matters, right? Race absolutely matters. But there is a class condition that normalizes and makes all those other things happen. It's the engine that animates the the, the, the sexuality and the gender and the race conversations. So on both sides, you got people kind of be decrying this, this moment. For me, 
the train's never the train's never late, right? Every election cycle, someone says, you know, identity politics screwing us up. Yeah. You know, if the left wins, you know, they say, yeah, they won by playing to cheap identity politics. They're not going to do anything for the country. If right. the right wins, they say, see, this is what happens when you when you don't take these things seriously. The thing that gets or, to... or when like Barack Obama wins, we transcended identity politics. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And what's also identity politics don't. It's one of those definitions that could kind of mean whatever you it, want it to it, mean. It's a green yeah. screen. Absolutely. Yeah. It, people uh, uh, assign to it whatever it. they want and. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is there's no more aggressive and maybe even dangerous form of identity politics than white nationalism, right? They are appealing to whiteness and they simply cloak it in this in this idea of American patriotism or this nostalgic hearkening uh, back to a day that never was, you know, when America was quote unquote great. You know, that's all a form of identity politics. They're smuggling in a very particular notion of citizenship that doesn't allow for immigrants, particularly south of the border, that doesn't allow for Muslim Americans, doesn't allow for South Asians, doesn't allow for Sikhs, doesn't allow for all these sort of groups that are seen as outside the, the canopy of Americanness, this very narrow nativistic Americanness, ironically, right, since everyone's an immigrant. Yes. So all of this is, is identity politics. But they, what they really mean is we don't want your identity politics. It's, it's just like when uh, in, in the university, when we talk about studying race, we tend to mean studying everything but whiteness, right? Mm-hmm. When we say we're studying race, we really mean studying, you know, black and brown folk. When we say studying gender, we mean studying women, right? Whiteness gets, gets put in the closet. And so part of what we have to do in this post-election cycle is out whiteness and talk about the ways that whiteness, in many ways, overdetermine this election. Let's talk about whiteness. As a white person, I never really identified with whiteness. In fact, the people who rally around whiteness as a culture, I say to myself, what are you, crazy? Sure, I'm Italian or Jewish or whatever you happen to be. And yet I do understand the part of it where I'm the dominant culture, and so sometimes I take that for granted. It does seem to me that there are two types of people who want to be having the conversation about whiteness. They're on the exact opposite poles. You got the Breitbart people who I don't agree with at all, and then you probably probably do have the Department of African American Studies who say grapple with your whiteness. I don't know how useful that is beyond just acknowledging, you know, the idea of privilege. Well, it's it's about understanding structures of power as well. You know, you talk about, you know, not thinking about your whiteness as a thing. And I think that's significant. I, I think we tend to think about ethnicity as the thing, right? Mm-hmm. It's okay to be proud to be Italian. You know, if I were to say name five things you love about being Italian, you could name or you could name five things. Name five things you love about First being Irish. First two Godfather movies. <laughs> right. There you go, right. Yeah. After the third one, you know. Yeah, no, no, that's nothing we to do with it. Three right. more, yeah. Blame Andy Garcia for that, right? <laughs> um, but, but then there's this way that if I said name five things you like about being white. Yeah. Right, it, it'd make you uneasy. Right. The first thing we have to understand is that whiteness and blackness are not opposite sides of the same coin, right? One has normative power. One is about unmerited power and privilege. The other is not. So when we talk about whiteness, it's it's, it's a particular construct. The other thing is that you can become white, right? There's all this research and literature on how the Irish became white, how how Jewish people became white. Yeah, Jews were never white. Yeah, Yeah. and then one day you are. And now there's the idea of uh, Latinos and non-white Latinos. Absolutely. Big and new, and maybe in Cuba they understand it, but that's new to America. Absolutely, and and that means that whiteness is something that you can buy into mm-hmm. if you are of a certain sort. I agree with everything you said, and yet when the conversation about whiteness is thrust upon us, or people say we need to talk about whiteness, there's only one acceptable way for white people to feel about that. You can't be proud of your whiteness. You pretty much have to either apologize for your whiteness or realize that it is a privilege that you didn't earn. I think you have to be accountable for it. Okay. I think that's a good you, way to put you, it. I don't think you have to be, a, hey, sorry, I'm white. Like, you, you're born into whiteness. That's yep. the point, right? You're born in. But it's easier for me just to reject the idea of whiteness. Like, I look at these white nationals, I'm like, who are you bonding with over the fact that you're white? That right. is a pretty backwards. So it's, it can 
can't, but it can't be affirmative and it can't be positive. And the way I think that this played out in the election is that there are a bunch of disaffected people who maybe didn't understand this enough on an intellectual level. They intuited it. And even if they're not or don't think of themselves as actively racist, they were attracted to Trump based on, you know, how the feeling of the conversation about whiteness played out in their lives. Right. Because it was the first time where they didn't have to be accountable for whiteness. Mm -hmm. That's that's interesting. You know, and so, in fact, they could double down. They were giving... He was giving them a get out of uh, get out of guilt free card. Or Absolutely, like that. Yeah. and so he was able to say things that people were thinking, like, "Yo, they're taking our jobs. Hey, why can't they learn the language? Hey, let's build a border or uh, build a wall, uh, as absurd as that sounds, so that people can't come in." All these sorts of things were things that people may have thought in their minds but couldn't say out loud. Doesn't mean that everyone's a closet racist per se, but what it does mean is that there was no space to wrestle with this stuff and engage it within the public sphere, and so people kept it inside. Or and then they turned to their Fox News, they turned to their Trump rallies, they turned to their you know their their alt right news, you know, and it allowed them to close ranks around whiteness in a way that isn't typically permissible in public, and 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 Trump did that, and it's not like Trump Trump didn't invent these people, no. he just put stupid hats on them so you can know exactly where they were at all times. It, it, it was actually fascinating to see just how unchanged the nation is, yeah, in in precisely the ways that we thought it had changed in two thousand and eight, yeah. And they weren't pointy white hats. They were no. just regular red hats. Red and orange hats. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And though the an- analogy is there. Now, your book, I read your book. It goes into, you spent a lot of time in Ferguson. Talk about Flint. It's about nobody. The idea of especially these poor inner city, doesn't have to be inner city, could no. be exurban, black, youth. They're nobody in America. But and you know, white people. In the that's bo- it. These yeah. white voters felt like nobody. And is the important thing, th- well, for an election, the important thing is how you feel. How you feel is how you vote and that's reality. Or is the important thing that their self-definition as a nobody is less accurate than a black person's uh, self-definition? Society is, society is giving different messages to yeah. the white and the blacks and the, and the white people have over-interpreted and get, you know, so defensive about it. Whereas, yeah. you know, for black people, People, it's hmm. been preached to them for hundreds of years. For me, nobodyness is about a politics of disposability. Mm-hmm. That the market and our obsession with the market and our obsession with market logic and our obsession with privatization and our obsession with efficiency and austerity and deregulation and quote unquote free trade, all these things that are just part of neoliberal America, mm-hmm. neoliberal globalization, really, right? The entire world is market driven, market obsessed. That leads to nobodyness. Right. That nobodyness didn't just start, but that nobodyness is exacerbated for certain folks. So if you're black, you've already been on the wrong side of the economy. You're one of the people Malcolm X called the victims of democracy. Right. If you're the white worker in Tennessee, you're also rendered nobody by the market. If you're if the factory in Flint closes down because you just you just have an, you don't have access to labor anymore and the jobs are going to the far east or you've been automated out of it, you know, techno, tech, technologized out of it, then suddenly you're rendered nobody in certain ways as well. We erase the vulnerable, we make them disposable. And the problem is and this is also a problem with of whiteness, and this is evidence in the Trump campaign again, is that we convince white people that the best way to get out of social misery is to rally around whiteness and not around labor. And so the, the, the Bush tax, I mean, there are people in Tennessee and Mississippi and West Virginia who were voting for the Bush tax cuts yeah. in 2000. Yeah. And it's like, dude, you don't get anything from this. You have no material investment in the Bush tax cuts. I have more of an investment in the Bush tax cuts. And when I'm on Fox News, as I was at the time, arguing against the, the Bush tax cuts, these poor white mechanics would write me, the guy on TV, and say, hey, I'm tired of giving you my money. <laughs> because in their mind, they racialized poverty. So in their mind, not giving... The, the, 
they they could only see it through that through that prism. W. E. B. Du Bois talks about that in Reconstruction. He says, "Why would the white worker not want to end slavery? Right? If you're a white worker, you should want slavery to end because otherwise, you're always priced out of the market." But they closed ranks around the planter and not the slave because they are closed ranks around Du Bois, what Du Bois called the psychic wages of whiteness. They they literally saw whiteness as property. You didn't vote Democrat, or did you vote for the Green Party? I, I'm, green, I'm a Green Party member, supporter, and I was a surrogate for Jill Stein. Do you vote in Georgia? I vote in Pennsylvania. Oh, so, so you mattered. I was going to ask you. <laughs> All votes matter. No, they don't. I've, I've, read, I've been reading about this. So really, if the vote came down, you thought the differences between Hillary and Trump were so minute that... I mean, I know the reasons that you vote, that you really want a third party and you want to animate the Green Party. Right. But if it all came down to you and it was all down to one vote in Pennsylvania. I assumed it would be. Yeah. That's And and it almost was. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Let me be very clear, though. The Green Party had everyone who voted Green. Now, based on the final numbers, if everyone, if every single Green Party member had voted for Hillary, yes, Hillary would have won. But that's not going to happen. That's an unreasonable expectation. That is an unreasonable, many people would stay in. But I guess my question to you is, I just want to put that out there because there's this narrative that the Green Party called it, that we nadered this election. And it's like, I'll tell you like like Ralph Nader, you know, or like Michael Moore told me that Ralph Nader told him, is that look, if, if I couldn't get you to vote for me, if I couldn't get Michael Moore to vote for me, as Al Gore, then that's that's a that's a failure of my campaign, not a failure of Michael Moore. Because Michael's like, I felt so guilty, you know. Um, but as but I guess my question is, seeing that Trump actually won yeah. rather than it being an abstraction, and seeing I expected him to win. win okay, I, seeing, expect, I expected that it was possible that he would win. But seeing the Bannon appointment, and seeing that women with hijabs being harassed, and seeing the uh, everything that's happened as a result, are there any second thoughts? Not a not a one. I mean, Hillary's as a candidate had moral non-starters. Right. For me. okay. Most people didn't feel that way. Most people felt like you choose a lesser of two evils and we build a green party. Let's make it happen. I understood that logic. I said, do your thing. For me, uh, her, her, her advocacy for really anti-black policies, social policies in the 90s, her support of, of the occupation of Palestine, uh, the use of predator drones, uh, on down the list, her belief in the death in the death penalty. These were all things that for me were moral non-starters. I couldn't walk into a booth and pull that lever. I felt like I'd be on the wrong side of history if I'd pulled that lever. Obama was three out of four of those. That's why I didn't vote for Obama. Okay. <laughs> I, I voted for Cynthia McKinney and Jill Stein. Again, I'm trying to be consistent here, right? This isn't. It wasn't. It, Hillary's not the worst thing that's ever happened to the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. She's an, she's a logical conclusion of 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 this particular moment of Democratic candidates. I didn't like any of them, so I didn't vote for any of them, right? I I expected Donald Trump to be a Normal Republican president. And what he's shaping up to be is a normal Republican president. Scary, yes. Uh, but that's what that's what we fight. And I think if we fight properly and we fight with the right energy, the right weapons and the right uh, sort of collaborations and connections across these coalitions, I think we have the possibility of being stronger in 2020 and in 2024 and even in 2018 than we ever could have been with Hillary Clinton in office right now. I, I, I understand the Supreme Court appointments. I don't think we're going to get three or four Trump Supreme Court appointments. I think if if anything, America has shown us throughout history that it doesn't want any party to have complete control of any of, of the government. Right. I imagine sweeping uh, elimination of Republicans in the House and Senate in 2018. I imagine us to be able to filibuster and push and, and, and uh, stall Supreme Court appointments in the same way that we just did Barack Obama's Supreme Court appointment. I don't expect that to be any different. I imagine Trump will get one in I don't, and unless barring something extraordinary, and something extraordinary could happen, but barring something extraordinary, I don't imagine that we'll see more than one, maybe two. Is that a big deal? 
Absolutely. Well, look at the actuarial tables for some of these old Democratic appointee Supreme Court oh, yeah. justices. They don't look good. I will hook them to the battery charger in my car <laughs> if I have to. I need them to stay alive. You're going to weaken at Bernie. Yeah, them. exactly. Okay, here's my last question. Polls have showed that during the Obama presidency, more black Americans are saying that race relations have gotten worse. I don't love the question because it could mean a lot of things. There are two different, yeah. uh, they're meaner to us, we hate them more, all that stuff. But do you think, uh, you know, what's your prediction in four years, will black America look back at the time of the Obama presidency and say, we never knew how good we had it? Uh, I think President Obama's legacy will be a mixed one and an interesting one. And I think we will look back and say, hey, we had, the, we had the ear to a White House to some extent. I think we'll look back and say, hey, we got the most significant piece of domestic policy through in 50 years. I mean, since 65. Mm-hmm. I mean, Voting Rights Act. I mean, since then, I mean, this is the most significant thing we've seen, right? Uh, race relations, I think, are not a function of any core structural change. The lives of black folk didn't get significantly better or worse under Barack Obama. White people's lives didn't get significantly better or worse under Barack Obama, except to the extent that the, that the, that the economy ebbs and flows. Right? Yeah. Um, Perhaps th- he saved us from the abyss, but you don't know. We don't because, know, right? Yeah. Because you don't know, right? President Obama intervened on race probably less than many other presidents because he didn't want to be the black president. He wanted to be the president who was black. Right. So I don't blame him for that per se. I hold him accountable for not intervening more, for not being stronger on race. And I would like to think that in the Trump moment, there's a possibility of racial repair, not because Trump will be better on race. No, he's a monster. But I think hopefully we can organize. Yeah. We can create the world that is not yet. We can create new political possibilities and we can survive the era of Trump. Mark Lamont Hill is a distinguished professor of African-American studies at Morehouse College, is the author of Nobody, Casualties of America's War on the Vulnerable from Ferguson to Flint and Beyond. Good to meet you. Thank you very much. Pleasure's mine. And now the spiel. Ugly and unproven allegations against the president-elect have dominated the news for the last couple days. BuzzFeed has posted an entire dossier detailing what it says is Russian efforts at compromat and infiltration into the Trump campaign. Slate also published this, it should be noted. And CNN was the first to report that the president and president-elect were both presented with a summary of this file. The president-elect and his staff have pushed back, citing some inconsistencies in the report. It claims lawyer Michael Cohen has never been to Prague, but he kind of likes the music. And he's never been to heaven, but he's been to Oklahoma. Thank you. Thank you very much. But the Trump team also engaged in pushback of a more mendacious variety. Spokesman Sean Spicer said this at the press conference. Carter Page is an individual who the president-elect does not know. And yet here is Trump in a meeting with the editorial board of the Washington Post. He was asked, we heard you're going to be announcing your foreign policy team. Can you share any with us? Well, you know, I hadn't thought in terms of doing it. If you want, I could give you some of the names. Waleed Ferris, who you probably know, uh, PhD, advisor to the House of Representatives Caucus, and uh, is a counterterrorism expert. Uh, Carter Page, PhD. That doesn't mean he does know Carter Page. It could equally indicate that he was just talking out of his bum when citing an advisor who he's never met or taken advice from. But a major tactic of the Trump team was to blast the media's irresponsibility. BuzzFeed for printing the entire dossier 
And that is, by the way, a proper criticism, in my opinion. And CNN for reporting on the mere fact of the dossier in general terms. Yet that was a legitimate piece of reporting, in my opinion. And also in Anderson Cooper's opinion, who in a long conversation with Kellyanne Conway had at it. What's inaccurate about what CNN reported? Oh, my goodness. The whole headline. You, you Go read the entire story. Four bylines and a story that's just not true. That Anderson, your sources are not correct. Generally, Cooper, because he let the interview go long, exposed for those who stuck with it, the tactics of evasion and subject changing that Conway used. There were a few delightful moments that you may have missed, though, like when Kellyanne upbraided Anderson thusly. I don't read BuzzFeed. Okay, now you're I'm not, insulting I'm... BuzzFeed. Remember, earlier that day, her boss said, As far as BuzzFeed, which is a failing pile of garbage, writing it, I think they're going to suffer the consequences. They already are. Now, in the interview, other news outlets were also referenced. You know, everybody said it was a bombshell, earth-shattering report last night. We didn't say it was BuzzFeed a bombshell. BuzzFeed then went ahead. But yes, he did. It, yeah, yes, he did. It says right here, Intel chiefs presented Trump with claims of Russian effort to compromise him. Where's That's the word not bombshell? That's true. Your, your, headline is, your headline is wrong. Well, then then, uh, then Seth, Meyer, Seth Meyer said that he confronted me on the bombshell. None of it is true. Well, and I, I think I'm sorry a day Seth later, can you tell me that you would... Kellyanne went on to allege that CNN engaged in a game of carpool karaoke with the facts. Anderson clarified that was probably James Corden. But basically, Kellyanne tried to conflate CNN with BuzzFeed and further conflate the truthfulness of the dossier with the accuracy of CNN's reporting that Trump was briefed with the dossier. A couple of key moments. So you're saying there was no you're saying that there was no two page summary that was included in briefing materials. The president-elect was asked that question today. You should refer to his answer, but I will tell you. Well, no, well, you can answer lower it. Level, he said, he said. He, no, I wasn't in the briefing. Okay, so you can't say whether or not, you're saying it's not true, but you're saying also what you can't What did the president-elect say today when he was asked? I don't know. You tell me. Anderson, are you comfortable that- But pe- if this didn't happen in an intelligence, intelligence briefing, quote, then you officials. can talk about it. That is an excellent point. Kellyanne can't both say, I can't talk about what happened in a briefing, and therefore I can't talk about this thing, and then go on to say, by the way, this thing wasn't in the briefing. If, it, if you can't talk about it because it was in the briefing, then it was in the briefing. Well, actually, when I think about it, she can say that. She tried to say that. What emerged was that Trump did get the briefing, at least in print form, but that he disputes his accuracy. Fine. CNN is not saying the dossier is accurate, just that it is a dossier. Though Kellyanne does not like that either. People keep using the word dossier like it's some like using some fancy French word is going to imbue it with credibility. Yes, I hate it when they use a fancy French word to get credibility. Hello and welcome to Trump at Home. My name is Rhonda, chef concierge here at Trump International Hotel and Tower, Toronto. Concierge! Or this official marketing ad. By purchasing at the Trump International Hotel and Tower, you get the best of both worlds by having a turnkey pied-à-terre in New York with five-star amenities. Pied-à-terre! Trump is selling his properties as pied-à-terres. Or how about this other notable Trump salesperson, Kellyanne Conway herself? Secretary Clinton, I used the State Department as a concierge for many foreign donors. That's been evidence. More concierges. We even found another fellow speaking all French-like affiliated with the Trump organization. Trump steaks are five-star gourmet, quality that belong in a very... Oh, and let's just go back, for fun, to the original 
Kellyanne, stop some fancy French word statement. People keep using the word dossier like, it's some, like using some fancy French word is going to imbue it with credibility. Au contraire, mon chéri. By the way, imbue from the French, imbue to moisten. Ah, well, c'est la vie. It's pretty derogore from the Trump aide-de-camp. Your bon mots amount to little more than a canard. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Chris Berube has never been to Spain, but he's been to Kitchener. Just producer Mary Wilson's motif consists of objet d'art. Executive producer of Slate Podcast Steve Lichtai is always hyper aware of his severe allergy to dried grapes. It's his raison detriment. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, wrote a thinly disguised novel about the chin dimple of a disgraced Polish director. It was a Romana cleft. The gist, home to your favorite idiot savant, San Savant. Umpuru deperu du peru, and thanks for listening.